Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What is Money show. I'm sitting down today with a new star in Bitcoin Twitter, Mr. Mike Alfred. Mike is an independent investor, and he recently sold two software companies, one to our friends over at NIDIG. And Mike and I are going to be talking about the book, The Tao of Capital, written by Mark Spitznagel today, which is a really good book. So, Mike, it's been a long time coming. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Excited about this. I've been listening to your show. It's my wife calls you uh, the professor of Bitcoin uh, because you go so deep. Uh, and the, because of the way you talk, she heard you on Twitter Spaces the other day and she was very impressed. So, well, I am honored. Um, I'll, I'll take it. Of all the, we're just saying offline that, you know, if you're on Bitcoin Twitter and you're not getting praised and or attacked or both really, then you're not doing it right. So, professor seems like a, a good nickname. I'll take that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know a lot about both, by the way. It's been a wild ride since I started using Twitter more actively in June of this year. I never really used it before and a lot to learn, right? But, uh, you know, there's good sides and bad sides to social media as it relates to Bitcoin Twitter, but uh, I'd say it's a net positive for me. Yeah, it's definitely contentious all the time, very adversarial. But once you, I guess, get used to it, it's just, it's sport, you know, it's just a fun place to sharpen yourself and hopefully sharpen others. Um, yeah, I, so, view it as, I view it as performance art at this point. I think a lot of people art. are most, <laughs> mostly performing. And I've even had situations where I've met people from Bitcoin Twitter in, in real life, and then they go back on Bitcoin Twitter and start the performance art again. And I can't tell whether they're serious or not because we've already met in person. So I'm not sure you know, what's yeah. going on there, but it's, it's very interesting medium. Yeah, it's a totally different vibe when you meet someone in real life. It tends to be very... Uh, they tend to be a whole different version of themselves, like very nice, a lot of camaraderie, you know, rah, rah, Bitcoin. But then you get back into Bitcoin Twitter. I guess when you get behind the phone or behind the screen, people just get a bit more courageous and um, vicious sometimes even. But it's easier. It's easier to hurl insults when you're not standing face to face with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> the keyboard warriors have a lot of courage I've found. So yeah. Keyboard warriors. That's right. And yeah, I think you and I, I've, I've caught myself people spewing venom at me many times on, on Bitcoin Twitter. And I've, you know, found myself typing that message like, Oh, your mom wants you to get back in the basement, you know? And I just, I want to hit send. <laughs> But I just, I restrained myself. So. You have more restraint than me, sir. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. By 2022, my, my, uh, one of my focuses will be on calming down my, my Twitter presence a little bit, yeah. a little bit more gravitas, a little bit more patience, et cetera. So we'll see if I'm successful. Yeah. I would like to get to more production focus, less consumption. Cause I think when you do the consumption, you get entangled in the arguments and all of that. So, um, all that said, we're talking about a book today that is quite sophisticated, very difficult read, um, but very enlightening. And I think, you know, Spitznagel has done a great job of taking the esoteric Austrian economics um, study and pulling it into kind of practical investment reality. Uh, to the point where he even develops, I believe, two frameworks in the book. He has Austrian Investing 1 and 2, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and you're a little bit fresher on this book because I know you said you just read it. I read this book about a year ago. 
Um, so I think we'll just jump in and see where we go. So can we talk a little bit about the guy's name is clip, right? That mm-hmm. was his, yeah, he was a, tra- a trader in the, uh, Chicago pit. And he was uh, right? Spitznagel's, um, I guess, mentor. yeah, he was Spitznagel's mentor and the guy was just full of wisdom. Um, so maybe we could just talk a little bit about him first. Like what, what's his story? What was, how did, what was the mentorship he provided Spitznagel and, and how does it apply to his investment framework later? Yeah. So Spitznagel, like a lot of great investors in history, uh, was interested in investing from a very young age, right? Like if you, if you look at any great investor, it's always, it's like a consistent theme. It's always something they're interested in, usually from a very young age, you know, they start uh, wanting to buy stocks when they're five, seven, nine years old, 12 years old, whatever. Um, and so I guess um, Spitznagel's father knew this trader uh, clip. And so he uh, got an invitation one day to actually go and watch kind of from the gallery, uh, the the trading floor there in the pit, which I guess is fascinating, right? It, it doesn't mm. even really exist today, that sort of environment where you have these multiple levels where the biggest traders with the the biggest order flow and the biggest customers kind of sit on the outside edge, looking down towards the middle where they can see uh, the process of the trading happening. Whereas the smaller, uh, newer traders like, like Spitznagel, when he first uh, joined uh, the floor, were down in the middle and, and, you know, getting knocked around by the bigger guys that were Mm -hmm. up on the outer gallery. So he saw that he was fascinated with it. Um, there is a component of the book that some people might not like, which is that you see that even Spitznagel's early opportunity set came from his familial uh, relationships. Hmm. Um, and so uh, people who would like to say, hey, I did it myself and I achieved everything in my life, right, <laughs> by doing it myself. Like there's almost always a story like this, hmm. uh, you know, for for people that got a fast start. But Spitznagel got a fast start. He started working for Clip um, in the pit, I think, shortly after he uh, graduated uh, he originally was put in the middle of the, the pit doing, you know, basically smaller uh, trades and clip taught him uh, from the very beginning that you want to take small losses uh, quickly and frequently. Um, and this is sort of antithetical to a lot of the thinking of investors today who are always looking for kind of a big score, mm-hmm. right? They, they want to make money a lot of the time and they want to make a lot of money. And actually clip said, Hey, the guys who, um, you know, make big scores like that. They are either very lucky and retired, or they're just they're, they're just out of the business, right? He said, if you want to survive on the trading floor here and make money consistently, you need to get good and actually enjoy losing small amounts of money, mm-hmm. right? And so he taught him about taking that quick early loss uh, early on, which I think is sort of formative because if you look at Austrian investing today and the way he practices it, it kind of follows naturally from this methodology of taking one step back or multiple steps back, small steps in order to take bigger steps forward in the future when the opportunity presents itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks a lot about the local edge, right? So as a market maker, um, you know, you you get paid when people try to cross the, the bid-ask spread, right? So your your privilege is to, is to be able to always uh, transact at that bid or ask as a local uh, as market maker, you can also take that that quick early loss. Whereas somebody who is has immediacy uh, will need to cross that bid ask spread, and that's where you actually uh, make your money. And he talks a lot about the kind of market routes. What happens when a lot of people are trying to transact immediately? That's when you see these kind of uh, you know big sell offs in markets where there's kind of this whoosh that washes out a lot of folks, particularly leveraged traders and 
So I think Clip was like a centering influence, taught him a lot about how to think about markets, taught him a lot about the differences between people who kind of look at markets like a lottery ticket, right? And are tr always trying to hit long shots and make big wins versus people who think of it in a more systematic way mm -hmm. and are able to make profits consistently over time following a consistent methodology of small losses. Yeah, no, that's a great, great intro. Um, and uh, to your point earlier, like I hate it when people say so-and-so is a self-made man or, or I'm a self-made man because no, who's self-made? No one's self-made, right? If you participate absolutely, in the absolutely market, nobody. did you make your laptop? Did you make your mic? Did you make your house? It's like, no, none of us are self-made. We're all interdependent. That's the nature of what's going on here. So I don't know. I just, I, I take exception to that when people try to claim they're self-made. Um, it's, it's not, it's not just interdependent on other people. It's interdependent on the means of production. Mm -hmm. which is a big theme of the book, this accumulation of more sophisticated capital structures over time. Yes. You can't create an internet company without a computer, right? Right. You can't create a cryptocurrency without the internet. Yeah. Right. And, and so you, that's just one example, but a lot of people like to say, Hey, I'm self-made. I did it all myself, but the reality is we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. So I think that's a, an important point to make. 100%. And yeah, he goes very deep into roundaboutness and how it increases the complexity of production structures. And that's how we become more wealthy, right? And this, you know, the esoteric term, the division of labor is commonly used in Austrian economics to describe this. But when I'm trying to simplify it for others, I say, look, we all know many hands make light work. That's effectively what the division of labor is. But then you could also take it a step further and say many minds make even lighter work. And we accumulate the mental discoveries of people over time, like that is civilization, right? We figured out all these ways of satisfying wants quicker, cheaper, better. So uh, to go back to the book here, he makes the great or clips basically teaching him sell your losers, double down on your winners, something like that. Um, but this is very, and this gets another core theme of the book that a lot of this practical investing strategy is contrary to your intuition. It's counterintuitive in a lot of ways. So I'll read one excerpt here. He writes, quote, it was nearly impossible to follow and practice consistently. Brutal was Clip's term to describe the formidable challenge of looking beyond the immediate outcome of retaining depth of field, a challenge that Clip believed was essential to gaining an edge. This was as it should be, indeed. If everyone accepted Clip's paradox, it would no longer be effective. It would no longer even be a paradox. And then here's where he starts tying it into Taoism that I think is interesting. Um, and he's referring to, I guess we would pronounce this Lao Zi, which was the author of, um, gosh, what is the name of the book? Tao Te Ching. Tao Te Ching. Thank you. And or, from or 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 lousy, right? It, I think it lousy pronunciations, yeah. <laughs> and I've always read him pronounce Lao Tzu in other texts, so I guess mm -hmm. Lao Tzu, uh, yep, yeah. So we'll go with Lao Zi here. So from Lao Zi, who wrote, "The bright path seems dim, going forward seems like retreat. The easy way seems hard. The highest virtue seems empty." And here are the favorite Taoist images of water and the valley the Laozi's attitude of lowliness, which water always seeks. Um, and, and I think what he's referring to there is, I've read this before, is that um, the Taoist wrote that water is most like the Tao because it flows to the lowest place on 
earth, but nourishes 10,000 things in its path. So there's something about this like deep ancient wisdom of retreating to gain, to advance. You know, there's this paradox of, you know, taking your losses quick and doubling down on your winners. That's, that's almost, it's contradictory to our instinct, but it is in fact the way uh, it's the most effective investment strategy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and uh, the ancient Chinese philosophy talks about action uh, through inaction, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the, one of the key concepts that comes through consistently uh, in the book. And it's, it's, you know, manifested in something like Tai Chi, right? Where you, you actually kind of win by yielding. Yes. Right? So you, yeah. you're actually strong by being weak. It's manifested in the game of, of Wei Chi or Go, yeah. or sometimes by yielding positions on the board, you, you ultimately win. And so it's this, this sort of doing by not doing hard is actually soft. Weak is actually strong. Yes. Even refers to false humility, which, which I find particularly interesting because a lot of people present this idea of humility as a virtue, like a fundamental virtue, but really in a, in a way, humility creates this positional advantage because people believe you're weaker than you are. You can actually become strong at some opportune time in the future and gain a huge advantage on any of your uh, potential opponents. And so in a way, and I've noticed this in business, uh, a lot of the people who talk the most about humility Mm. are actually not humble people in the Mm -hmm. way they actually behave. They're really quite aggressive Mm. uh, in the way that they run their business, but they're almost hiding. They're, They're using this kind of false humility to sort of hide in the darkness and appear to be quiet and appear to be weak. And then they spring forth uh, later in a full attack uh, at the moment where the opportunity presents itself. And so there's this concept of she, it's spelled S-H-I, she, but I think it's actually pronounced sure or sure, mm-hmm. uh, which is this positional advantage that's obtained uh, over time. And so the, the, the object of the Taoist, whether in a military battle or in, a, a, in commerce is to actually achieve this positional advantage over time relative than going directly at the end goal, which might be to win the war and achieve peace or the end Mm -hmm. goal, which might be to to build a business. It's to obtain the means to make the ending of the war or the successful business enterprise sort of inevitable through the successive building up uh, of capital uh, Mm -hmm. over time. And to go back to your original comment though, there's like this fundamental time arbitrage that I've noticed as an investor, right? And you see it in the markets, particularly right now with ultra low interest rates and obscenely high asset prices, particularly for the most popular uh, assets in the world, like technology equities in the US, for example, uh, where there's this like extreme focus on the here and now. Mm -hmm. And this inability to even understand that like what matters is is not necessarily here and now, because right now is just one snapshot of time. Mm -hmm. But actually what matters is where's your capital where is your health? Where is your well-being? Three months from now on a Tuesday, nine mm-hmm. months from now on a Wednesday, two years from now, right? Because those moments are no less important. But for whatever reason, because of this sort of manipulated, uh, low interest rate environment we're in, people are intimately and immediately focused on everything happening in the here and now. Um, and, and that's counterproductive to obtaining this kind of sure that that uh, you know, Spitznagel talks about as coming from the ancient Chinese philosophy, where you want to sort of lie, lie in wait and, and be patient and wait for the opportunities mm-hmm. that are coming in the future, as opposed to simply jumping on the opportunity that you see uh, right now in front of you. 
Yeah, it's so, so well said. Um, a lot of things coming up there for me. Um, this extreme focus on the here and now, like, I think there's a deep argument to be made that when you corrupt money, basically move to a fiat world, the money's depreciating rapidly. You know, the Austrians describe this as elevating your time preference, that it's really screwing up people's relationship with their future selves, right? This, again, if you, every action you take is effectively a trade with the spectrum of your future selves across time. So if you're considering less and less of those future selves, then you're going to make worse decisions, right? You're going to take on excessive leverage, or you're going to just uh, accumulate some hidden risk in your business, trying to make some short run gain without considering the longer term consequences. And there's a, what is the, um, it's kind of like to play, you're playing in this fiat environment against people with these higher time preferences. The optimal strategy would be to be inactive, right? To be well capitalized. And this reminds me of that quote. Um, I don't know who said this, but if you wait long enough by the river, you can see the bodies of your enemies float by. Mm. It's like being in a strong position, not taking excessive risk, kind of like Buffett's wisdom, right? Being fearful when others are greedy, greedy when others are fearful, trying to be in that position to um, advance yourself and advance your capital position, which ties into another one of Buffett's quotes. And I, I'm going to totally screw this one up, but he makes the point that's one of the hardest things to do in business is to know when to do nothing and to know when to act like a lot of his um, I think a lot of his business history is a lot of inaction actually, right? They're just waiting for people to get washed out in these liquidity cascades or whatever. And then they go in and buy everything on for cheap and hold it forever. Yep. And he says, you only know who's uh, swimming naked when the tide goes out. Exactly. Right. And yeah. He gets a lot of criticism. I mean, it's, it's every decade or two, he gets a lot of criticism for holding large amounts of cash, but it really is. And, and Spitznagel highlights this near the end of the book, that it really is a, a, a nearly Austrian uh, concept uh, to sit with large amounts of cash. And, and in fact, his, his Austrian one, um, you know, formulation, one way to take advantage of unusually high asset prices is to do absolutely nothing, just mm -hmm. refuse to participate right. in the market. And in his parable of uh, Nibelungen, Nibelungen is this place where these three like prototypical Austrian uh, guys probably wearing lederhosen and with their horns right up in the fields in the Alps somewhere uh, build businesses, right? It's uh, Siegfried, mm, uh, right. Johan and Gunther, right? And so Siegfried is this exceptional entrepreneur that earns above his cost of capital. Uh, you know, uh, Johan earns approximately the cost of capital. So he's sitting in sort of stasis. And then Gunther is pretty bad at entrepreneurship and is constantly uh, spending down the assets. Uh, you know, he's having to sell the land uh, because he's not earning his cost of capital. And so you, if you use that kind of parable to think about everything, right? Like it, it, it tells you that, that fundamentally, um, you know, as an investor, uh, you, you probably only want to be investing in people that can actually earn their cost of capital. The, the problem is with all of the intervention and artificially low interest rates is that it looks like everybody's earning their cost of capital. Mm -hmm. And so it lures everybody into the market at increasingly higher asset prices. And that's where Warren Buffett kind of wins. He, he's seen that movie so many times. He knows the difference between a Gunther and a Johan and a Siegfried, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't chase the Gunthers when they look, 
temporarily profitable or temporarily economical mm -hmm. at the end of the cycle and waits for others to get washed out, to, to see who's swimming naked, to see your enemies floating down the stream. It's all linked together. It's this action, uh, taking action through inaction. It's being patient and, and waiting for the correct opportunities and accumulating capital in a roundabout way mm -hmm. through that patience. So it, it's all linked together. And, and, and actually, you know, as a value investor, a self-professed value investor, uh, I do, uh, all of this kind of resonates with me, although, you know, Spitznagel does make a distinction uh, between Austrians and, and value investors. I think it's a thin distinction because I think the way value investing has evolved, it actually looks quite a bit like the kind of his classical definition of Austrian investing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it comes down to basically refusing to swing uh, when there's right. no pitch hitting, right? Yeah, conserving your energy for the opportune time. And the the quote here is exploiting others immediacy was the logic of the roundabout approach, the fundamental edge, the ultimate edge of trading and investing. Um, and so I tied this back to something I got from Taleb, which is that time and volatility are like the same thing, right? Volatility occurs over time inevitably. And so st these stressors that come through volatility across time, if you're in an undercapitalized or, or a leveraged position, this is what causes your need, your, your need for immediacy, right? All of a sudden you have to act, you're forced to act. And contrarily, if you're in a strong equity position, you know, not leveraged, or if you've got a lot of optionality, a lot of cash, whatever, you're basically convex to time at that point. So you are anti-fragile. You're in an anti-fragile position and you're just waiting for the fragility cascade to unfold. And then you just, you know, go... I'm sure people just send you spreadsheets and they're like, everything's on the fire cell and you just buy whatever you want and then uh, sit on it. Right. <laughs> so it's really, really, yeah, we should, we should mince no words about it. Right. Um, the ultimate objective of obtaining positional advantage is to essentially victimize uh, other people in the economy. It's That's not right. that different. It's not that different from poker. If you're a world-class exactly. poker player sitting at a table full of, uh, you know, fish Right, you're not going to win every hand, but you're going to sit patiently until you come across situations where you can get your money in with a severe, uh, you know, advantage yes. uh, from a game theory standpoint over your competitors. Because you know, if you do that consistently, even with variance, you will eventually win. Now, yeah. poker is a zero-sum game, where all the profits that go to the winners ultimately come uh, from the losers' net yeah. of the the house rake. Business is a little bit more interesting and investing is a little bit more interesting, is a little bit more limitless, right? Because multiple people can win in any given simulation of yeah. the future, right? But it's but the the whole idea of the the way that Spitznagel uh, looks at the Chinese philosophy and kind of turns it towards Austrian economics is the whole waiting is not for nothing. You're not you're not building these more advanced capital structures mm -hmm. and waiting patiently for no reason. You're waiting because at some point some intertemporal moment in the future, you're going to use that advantage to systematically exploit yes. that economic advantage for profit in a way that, let's call it what it is, may hurt other participants in the economy. Now, you didn't bring about that destruction in your competitor. Your competitor gets wiped out and right. is overlevered and goes bankrupt and has to sell you assets in a fire sale environment. You just took advantage of the conditions um, that, that were in place, right? Because you were in a place like Buffett with a lot of cash at the bottom of the cycle when everybody's freaked out and nobody wants to buy assets to, to be able to buy those assets. Yeah. So maybe it's not victimization, right? Maybe that's not a fair way of saying it. Some, sometimes it probably feels like that. 
but the reality is anybody who has to dump assets at low prices, uh, you know, at the end of a cycle or at the bottom of the cycle, probably made mistakes that were avoidable. Yeah, well, 100%. I love the analogy to poker because it's effectively strategic exploitation. If you don't embrace that strategy at the poker table, you're toast, right? Like, wait until you're in position, wait until the stack is proper to the cards dealt. Then, you know, you can be very patient, right? You're folding a lot of hands over a lot of time. But then when the time is right, you go super aggressive. And that, from all the, I played just a little bit of poker recreationally. It's like, that's the optimal strategy. It's tight, but aggressive. So you're tight all the time. But then when the time is right, you're extremely aggressive. And it's this it I would maps say, directly to investing. I would say that's that's right with a little twist in that, um, you know, as poker has evolved, there there's more of an awareness that that actual actually positioning mm-hmm. and situational awareness are, are very important. Yeah. Right. So it's not just do you have aces or kings, these sort of highly valued hand is do you have them in the in the on the button and or do you have right. them in late position? And or do you have them in a situation where you get to play heads up against a significantly weaker uh player, right? Or in a, a portion of the tournament where that player is understacked and yeah. likely to be afraid of getting wiped out can just lean on a money bubble, right? And so yeah. there's it's not just the the values of the businesses you own, it's the situations. Right. It's, it's, there's other components uh, to it. There's obviously opportunities to switch gears based on the way the other people are are playing. And that's a very Austrian, uh, you know, sort of way of thinking too, because at its fundamental level, the Austrians looked at how people actually behave in the real economy. Mm -hmm. They're less interested in here, let's theorize about like how people might behave. They're actually, they're actually interested in how people actually behave. And they're aware that people behave in completely unpredictable ways, but particularly at the individual level, individuals behave in different ways for all kinds of different reasons, but collectively the markets find homeostasis over time, if left alone to do their own thing, right? Mm -hmm. Individual actors, individual entrepreneurs acting independently, making independent decisions, ultimately get to the right place, right? And create healthy functioning markets. And this belief that you see, particularly around crisis moments, like you saw this in 2008, uh, you're seeing, you saw this during the the early stages of the pandemic where people say, well, we, we can't just let this market self-correct and function. We, we have to stop people from going hungry. We have to stop people from getting foreclosed on. And we have to stop the auto industry from going bankrupt. Right. And the Austrians would say that's, that, that's fundamentally wrong, right? Like you're actually creating systematically a more fragile market, a more fragile economy by stopping that natural structure. And, and Spitznagel does a really interesting thing. He, he connects that to the forest. Yeah. forest management and the Yellowstone fire of 1988. And we've seen terrible fires in California over the last couple of decades. I actually left California in 2017, not because of the fires uh, previously, but I, I was in California during some of the worst fire periods. I think like 2004 was one of them. And, and what you saw was that forest management, this idea that, um, you know, you, you basically have to let these natural small fires happen uh, is what makes the, the forest robust. Mm-hmm. over time. Right. The same thing with economies, right? If you if you constantly intervene in them, they become more brittle and they're yes. actually subject to larger uh, you know, periods of stress in the future. Uh, you know, where where there are even worse things happen in the economy. Yep. Uh be, because of that intervention. Um so I know I'm I'm covering a lot of ground here and crossing over across no, different I, I love I love the crossover and then you know it's the Telebian synopsis on that is delayed and suppressed volatility through human intervention just 
delays and exacerbates volatility. It's like, you can't escape it. You're actually just going to make it worse kicking the can down the road. And I mean, that's what central banking is doing in a nutshell, right? We're trying to paper over all these economic errors versus letting the market actually wash them out, let the capital be reallocated to its highest and best uses. And the analogy in the forest is interesting because when you do that, the fires can actually become so big and so hot that the conflagration burns away the topsoil and then nothing can grow for decades. So it's like, right. it's, a, it's a different nature of destruction too. It's a total destruction that comes in the wake of it, which is super fucking scary if you consider what we're at now. Like, what are we, we're at the tail end of this 108 or nine year experiment with global fiat currency expansion. Like, how does this thing end? It's going to be, in theory, a catastrophic fire. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, it's something that I think most people, particularly people from the kind of Keynesian uh, tradition, they, they, they just don't want to believe that they, they want to believe that there's these animal spirits, right. That Mm -hmm. there's these sort of uh, magical properties of markets that cause uh, you know, that, that, that cause these downturns, these recessions, and that we must, we're Superman and we must do what we can to prevent them. Yeah. Right. Without recognizing that these na- they are natural parts of any system and healthy systems require, and it, is, it goes back to the cyberkinetics uh, component, which is this feedback loops. The, mm-hmm. These negative feedback loops are actually healthy, and these uh, you know uh, these market cycles like we're seeing now that are artificially elongated by the Fed are actually not healthy mm-hmm. because they incentivize risk taking behavior, they incentivize momentum trading and investing and other things that actually don't uh, drive real long-term capital formation. They're not actually making us wealthier. They're making us seem like we're wealthier. No. Uh, and uh, it doesn't work in the long run. Not no, just yeah. Work. It's illusory, right? And especially the, I'm always astonished when I just reflect on the nature of fiat currency, how effective the illusion has been. It's like just by printing, you know, diminishing the unit of economic value, money, we, we were able to, twist people's perception like, oh, well, my house is going up, my stocks are going up, so everything must be fine. And it's just a first order deception. Like clearly you're getting robbed via inflation, but yet it's just, wor- it's still working. People still think inflation's good and normal. And we're, we're here, we're, where are we at now in the US? 40, 50 million unemployed or uh, they've left the workforce, sort of the term of that labor force. Um, Leavers, yeah. Le- what, yeah. But the stock market's at all-time highs, or was at all-time highs. I know it's come down since, but um, how like how can people reconcile that in their minds? It's just it doesn't I, make sense. I, I think, t- from a self-serving standpoint, a lot of it is that uh, the people, the the most powerful people in the economy, the wealthiest people in the economy, are actually benefiting mm-hmm, yeah. uh, from from money printing, right? And b- because if you look at the chart since 1971, right, of wages versus capital, yeah. Uh, it's very clear that the yeah. prosperity of the wealthiest people in the economy has continued unabated. Mm-hmm. So there is no problem, really, uh, for those people. <laughs> the, the people who sit on the central bank board, the CEOs, yeah. the hedge fund managers, why should they complain about a system that's actually, at least for now, working for them? I think the, the challenge is when the wealth inequality gets so severe at yes. some point that it begins to actually affect their quality of life. When when right. people are jumping over the gates of your gated community, I right. don't care if you're a billionaire, you're, you're not going to be happy about that. Exactly. Right. And there's also constraints between the physical world, right. And this sort of 
fake world of, of, of uh, you know, fiat monetary policy, which popped up a little bit during the pandemic here with these supply chains that have sort of broken down where again, you could be a billionaire, but you may not be able to buy toilet paper. Mm-hmm. And so it, it brings in this sort of like front and center. It reminds the wealthy class, frankly, people like me, right? I'm not going to make any, uh, you know, uh, illusions about that, right? Like I, I've been blessed and, and lucky over the last 20 years to, to build a lot of capital through building businesses. Now I'm aware that the fiat system uh, played a role in that, right? Like the, my ability to raise cheap capital uh, got easier, by the way, from 2009 when I raised my first mm-hmm. seed round of capital till now. Now you can raise a $20 million seed round with very little effort. Back then it was pulling teeth in six months to raise a million dollars in seed capital. So that that's the pernicious impact of, of lower and lower interest rates and an easier and easier money environment. But, but, you know, in spite of all those benefits, like I still see over the long run that if the entire uh, fiat superstructure collapses, it doesn't matter how many fiat shekels you have in your bank account, how many planes or boats or houses, whatever you have, your, your kids are not going to have a safe place to live. You know, they're not right. going to be able to have the same experience we had uh, in the past. And so at some point, the, the, if the system breaks down, it doesn't matter how well you did at playing a game that was fundamentally broken. And I think there are more and more people, even amongst sort of the money to lead class that understand that. Yeah. No, no, that's a great point. It's back to the force analogy, right? That when the fire does come, it just devastates everything. You've delayed volatility, but you've exacerbated it to the point of destroying the roundaboutness of the production structure such that aggregate wealth is declining. So you're like the money is essentially just a call option on all that stuff. If all of a sudden less stuff is being produced, more capital is being consumed, then what does it matter? It's, it's just capital consumption. Yeah. Right. If, if people believe that money is going to be cheap forever and the hurdle rate for a new investment is effectively zero, then you could spray capital around on anything like yep. going to the store and buying, uh, you know, uh, marshmallows and Cheetos mm-hmm. makes sense. Buying a new airplane makes sense. Right. Uh, investing in startups that that have no chance of succeeding makes sense potentially because the alternative is, you know, you, you own a, a melting ice cube. Right. So this artificially low interest rates, artificially low cost of capital actually drives the consumption of long-term more sophisticated uh, capital structures yep. and drives it into the here and now. And that fundamentally just doesn't make sense in the long run. It actually leads to a declining standard of living eventually yeah. over time. Yeah. It's, it's de-civilizing even, right? Ultimately civilization is just how much capital have we accumulated? And if you start consuming that, you're drawing down the capital stock, you're it, actually it, it, de-civilizing the world. You're also dehumanizing individuals, yeah. right? Because before low interest rates and before the you know the fiat currencies before the dollar was a reserve currency you know you used to have to pay wages in in your own local area that actually reflected uh you know both value created and the actual cost of living what an what an employee actually needed yeah. uh, in order to live there now your complete disconnect between the fundamental reality of of what value the employee actually creates right and what they right. actually have to spend in order to live in that area uh, and and the the business itself, right? So what you see is entrepreneurs just outsourcing uh, yeah. big chunks of their production to completely disparate areas that have the lowest uh, cost employees, whether that's good for society or not. Um, and it dehumanizes people in these actual local areas, mm-hmm. right? Over time, because it's 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 incentivizing behaviors that I don't think necessarily people would take on their own without that monetary manipulation. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. 
As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Yeah, so the author, he's tying together a lot of ancient wisdom, let's say, which we'll start to unpack here in a minute, um, to the art of economics, really. And as he writes, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. Um, and um, what calls to mind for me here is um, Economics in One Lesson, the book by Hazlitt, where he always talks about the seen and the unseen. And as we were describing earlier, people are so focused on the seen of the, in this fiat currency complex, like, oh, my, my house value is going up, my stocks are going up, everything is fine, but not seeing the unseen which is this, you know, I guess it's a, is it a regressive tax on the populace via inflation? Plus you're, you know, sparking populism in the long run. And, you know, all these things we talked about that can be ultimately destructive uh, to the roundaboutness of the production structure. Um, so yeah, there's an art here. That's a real art of actually training yourself to be, I guess, perceptive of the unseen consequences of action versus the first order consequences of action. Yeah, that's right. And it's related to, um, you know, the intertemporal moments in the future, right? It's related to, uh, you can experience something right now, but it's no less important than the thing you experience in two years. It's also related to this kind of Austrian, um, you know, tradition of asking why, right? So a lot of times you can get to the same kind of belief like, hey, this is what happens when you print money. Um, but a lot of the other traditions just stop with here, this is what happens. They don't ask the next question of like, why did it happen? Mm. Right. And and so um, I would say all of those kind of things are linked together in the Austrian tradition. Yeah, definitely. This The idea of Austrians asking why it really puts the emphasis on the philosophical implications too. You know, it's Keynesianism just doesn't, there's not a depth of thought there. It's, they're literally just trying to really measure it's, it's implying this empirical framework to a non-empirical reality. Like the Austrians make this great point that there are no constants in human action. So you can't assign these formulas. Like we know water freezes at zero degrees centigrade. There's no comparative fixed relationship in the sphere of human action. Like everyone's just subjectively acting all the time. Um, so yeah, the, you know, the axiom that, that Mises starts with is man must act. And um, he writes here that, you know, what stood out was the role of time in Mises' worldview. 
time permeated everything, all action was a temporal succession of events, always of steps and fractions of time, the aim of which was the removal of future uneasiness. Um, so yeah, that I mean, it's a totally different view on the world. And he ties that what it does get interesting where he starts tying this into, you know, the nature of forestry and uh, later uh, martial strategy, I guess, and Clausewitz, right? Yeah. So he, he talks, he links, it's very interesting. He links like ancient Chinese philosophy to Napoleonic era military strategy. Yeah. And this great strategist, Karl von Clausewitz, uh, who is sort of came about in the late 18th century, like the 1780s. I think he was born. Yeah. He was a Prussian uh, general. He actually achieved general status. He started as a cadet, uh, went, went to general status uh, over time. He uh, was a military, military scholar, a writer. He, he hated uh, Napoleon in a lot of ways, right? Because Napoleon was his adversary. Um, but at the same time, he admired him and, and, and mm. liked to, to write about him. And Napoleon was actually the, the centerpiece of his great work. Uh, Von Krieg, I think is the name. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, his view is that Napoleon was decisive. Uh, and, and the reason why he was winning in a lot of ways, because timing was everything. And he was very decisive and good with timing. Um, Clausewitz was actually captured by French forces in 1806, mm. uh, believe it or not, and survived that experience. He was in jail for two years in which he spent a lot of time thinking about why the Prussians were were losing uh, to Napoleon in a lot of their uh, battles. Um, Clausewitz was heavily influenced by German philosophers like Immanuel Kant. Mm. Um, he was criticized roundly by uh, some of the British uh, military philosophers like Hart, um, who said, Blood is the price of victory. Great battles create great results. Total war approach is basically wrong, right? So he he criticized um, Clausewitz's strategy. But I think at a high level, the the thing that that really stuck and the, the reason why Spitznagel brought it up is this concept of zeal, which is the, the purpose of a battle is not achieving the the end state, right? Um, but it's rather of achieving the means to achieve the end state, which is called Zweck, uh, which is winning the war and ultimately achieving peace. He's also focused on attacking the uh, opponent's center of gravity. His idea mm -hmm. was if you attack the center of gravity of the opponent, you can cut short the war by by cutting off, uh, you know, the important pieces of the of the other side's infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? So if you attack the supply depot, or if you attack the, uh, right, if you attack uh, particular parts of the opponent's forces, you can actually cut the the war short. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one of the last things that he brings up is just. Uh, this idea of attacking in waves versus mm. attacking all at once. So he uses the story of two sides have a thousand troops. One side decides to throw all of their uh, troops into war. The other side only initially deploys a, a regiment of say 200 of a thousand so, or 500 of the thousand actually. And so what happens is, is the, in the initial skirmish, both sides lose 200, but the one side has all of their troops engaged. And so they're not, they're already tired, they're already engaged, and they're not paying attention when the other side um, from a position of strength is able to attack using the remaining 500 troops. And, and in effect, the way Spitznabel des describes it is that Napoleon lost by essentially doing this total war straight down the middle, like using all of your troops to attack aggressively, using kind of a Lee mm -hmm. strategy from the, from the Chinese uh, mm -hmm. philosophy concepts as opposed to the Shu or Xi strategy. Um, and whereas the 
Prussians had learned to, to attack more in waves and they, they were able to actually uh, uh, win uh, some of the, the great battles against Napoleon using that strategy. And obviously they ultimately uh, banished Napoleon to the island of Elba. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Let me, um, a couple of these terms, are, are you comfortable defining them? Because I know, uh, I don't recall exactly what they are, but Jouek was this potential energy, which I guess is analogous to capital, something like that. And you mentioned G. Zweck's the final end result, the ultimate victory. Right. Which, which, in, which in warfare, you know, would be the actual peace, mm-hmm. right, itself. That's the ultimate victory. And you use the energy, which is the metal. Right, mm-hmm. which is the means, right? Mm-hmm. The zeal is that positional advantage. It's that intermediate step where you look for that positional advantage, which ultimately leads to the Zwek. So the Zwek is the mm-hmm. end state. That's the final state uh, when you've won. And the same thing exists uh, in, in business too, mm-hmm. right? Where the whole point of the Austrian economic uh, tradition is to uh, accumulate the the means of production mm-hmm. so that you can achieve the, the final uh, victory of sorts. And he mm-hmm. kind of uses different words, right? So umweg, I guess, is the word in the Austrian tr- transition that, that actually uh, uh, connects with the zeal mm. uh, in, in the kind of Germanic uh, language, the German philosophy, right? The, mm-hmm. the Klauschwitz, Klauschwitzian mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. terminology, if I can if you can indulge me and allow me to say that <laughs> on your podcast. Of course. So that's, so it's means, ends, uh, position. Yeah. It's the, the, the strategic position. It's essentially like, uh, you know, the, the process in which it's the process, right? It's the process yeah. in which you achieve the strategic positional advantage, which mm-hmm. leads inevitably to the final result. Gotcha. And then the, the last one was the zeal, which is the, uh, the morale or the spirit, I guess. The Zweck, the Zweck is the, oh, is the final, is the final result. It's a zeal, sort of from a process. Zeal, Mattel, Zweck, right? Um, ah, okay. And- zeal, okay. Zeal, okay. Yeah. So not zeal as we understand it. This is the other. This is the. What language are these terms from? I forgot. I think I think it's a, a Germanic. It's Germanic, yeah. Uh, like in in uh, in origin. Yeah, I remember reading this book, and I had a hard time. Like I kept having to look back and. Cause he uses, he'll drop these terms a lot. And I kept having to look back to see which is, I, I don't know if he's using all of these terms to help us or if he's doing it to show yeah. his tactile <laughs> understanding of the material. It's like a soft uh, flex. <laughs> you know, it's been 20 years since I, since I was a student, uh, I was a history major and, and uh, you know, it feels a little pedantic. It feels a little professorial, but, but, you know, to really feel, cause some of these, one reason why you might do this, though, is that some of these terms actually only exist with the exact kind of meaning and definition in that original language. So you could yeah. attempt to describe them right. using other languages, but they don't necessarily mean the same thing. And one example is this kind of she, this shi, right? This the sure, if you use the Chinese pronunciation, which means effectively the same thing as zeal, which means effectively the same thing as umweg. There are three different languages. The umweg is actually uh, considered to be more of a kind of lower end word. It's less showy and fancy and mm. less magnificent in that tradition, but it effectively means the same thing as those other words. But again, things are often lost in translation. Yeah. 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 There's not, especially from, you know, Germanic language to English, there's oftentimes words they have that we just don't have a word for that you end up, right. we spend 15 words trying to describe their one word something like that. And, and we've got to accept the author 
at face value here that like he really is making valid connections. Uh, it feels right. So I want to be- want to believe it. There are probably some things that other scholars might say are a stretch, mm-hmm. uh, but I generally agree that there's a, there's a philosophical connection between ancient Chinese philosophy, right. And the, the military strategy of Klaus, Witch and the Austrian tradition, I, I generally agree with that connection. Yeah. It's he, you know, seems like he's using consilience of these multiple viewpoints that all point toward a deeper strategic reality of some kind, Whether you know, there's, again, there's different language, different vernacular in each um, school of thought, but they all have sort of similar dynamics. Um, and yeah, it's really, really interesting. And it, it lends a lot of credence to what he's saying too. It's like, clearly this is something almost like a natural law type thing. Like Correct. this was discovered Correct. by multiple cultures over time. This isn't something a group of people just made up by fiat. Like this is um, discovered, I guess is the best way to put it. Something that, you know, a market process uh, unsurfaced. And that, that idea of a natural law or fundamental truth pervades the Austrian tradition. Like that, mm-hmm. that's fundamentally what they were looking for is what are yeah. the fundamental truths about the way money works, the way yes. economies work, right. That can be encapsulated in some of these uh, belief systems that we have. And then how can that direct capital production, capital formation, yes. entrepreneurship and investing in the real economy. And um, I see the linkage when, when, uh, when Spitznagel uh, writes the book this way, Although there are probably some parts where anti-Austrian folks would be able to pick holes in some of it and say, look, that's a bit of a stretch there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I actually tweeted this out today that Ludwig von Mises is the most underappreciated philosopher in history. Changed my mind. And I, I believe that because he's not even, first of all, no one, not many people know who he is at all. If they do know who he is, he's just considered to be this uh, figurehead of Austrian economics. But when you actually read a book like Human Action, the book's like half philosophy. I mean, he's he does a very rigorous job on the economic side of things, but he's also giving kind of the, the philosophical or ethical case for Austrian economics as well. Um, I'll read. This is kind of a long excerpt, but I think he's just sort of tying some of this together and he's tying it back to clip as well. This is acting was to relieve our insatiable impatience and the pains caused by waiting and overcoming this natural urge was the necessary key to productivity roundabout production, the harvesting of the physically more abundant fruits of production processes, consuming more time and thus the significant role played by taking account of waiting time. Mises rightfully credited this central notion of the roundabout to his predecessor, the great Austrian economist, Eugen von baum Bulwark. hope we're pronouncing his name right, the subject of chapter five. Degrees of impatience, what the Austrians call time preference, the singular source in Mises' view of interest rates, in waiting and foregoing immediate profits or consumption, and even bleeding capital, such as through costly capital expenditures, was a logical part of our humanness. Indeed, part of that humanness, which we had to overcome to do certain propitious things, things which cumulatively amounted to the very progress of civilization. This was Clip's paradox writ large on the grandest scale, formalized and temporalized in the Austrian economic language. So I think that excerpt gives you a little bit of a taste of how this guy writes too. I mean, it's 
dense and he's got all these um uh what are the the m hyphen inserts you know where he's going into one thought and then he inserts one other big thought and then he goes back to the original thought Mm -hmm. so it's a very dense book which i enjoy reading but it can be painful for a lot of people as well (laughs) yeah yeah they they call it the the magnus opus of the austrian tradition this human action um i i enjoyed reading about him and his life too. I mean, the fact that he was able to escape uh, fr- from the Nazis and find a new home in the U.S. and connect with some of the uh, Americans that uh, continued on uh, the the Austrian tradition. And, and actually, Spitznagel says if if uh, von Mises had not uh, escaped Europe, it, it's unlikely we would even be talking about the Austrian tradition at all because right. he was able to bring those ideas forward and. Uh, people like Hayek and and uh, Murray Rothbard continue that, mm-hmm. uh, but you know the other the other thing that Switznagel connects it to, which is kind of interesting, is the neurological development uh, of the brain of of the hippocampus and the the frontal lobe, and you know people's ability to impulse control and do long term planning and uh, understand incentives and uh, connect short term to long term memory. Right, these are all things that you need to have in order to trade off something today for something bigger or better in the future, mm-hmm. which is fundamentally like what a lot of this work around time preferences is all about, right? So uh, understanding, um, you know, the impatience and the pains of waiting, right? And being able to resist those urges, which he gives the the uh, story of this Phineas Gage uh, character who was working on the railroads and, and gets basically a spike through the brain mm-hmm. and loses the capacity to to do long-term planning and show up on time for work. And he's alive, right? He, he surprisingly lives, even though there's a hole essentially in his head, mm. uh, but he's never the same again. And to some degree, Austrian thinking is like a higher order uh, uh, brain uh, mm-hmm. you know, type of process, right? Because you're resisting these base level urges to take more now in order to take more in the future. Now, obviously he, he's not talking about just long-term, right? Which he, he kind of considers to be a trope, you know, of long-term investing. Mm-hmm. What he's talking about is this intertemporal waiting for when the conditions are right so that you can actually take advantage of things in the economy. So it's not, it's not with a telescope that you look to the future, right? It's, it's enjoying every single moment, being aware of every single moment, but being aware that in two years and two months, the market may sell off dramatically, allowing you to, to take advantage of, of mm-hmm. opportunity. Um, the other thing that von Mises talks about is like the natural rate of interest, mm-hmm. this concept that there's a, there should be a real rate of interest rate um, and that that rate should revert based on natural organic business cycles, mm-hmm. right. And based on the needs of real consumers. And I think that's an important concept because if mm-hmm. you don't believe that's true, then you might be willing to accept a Keynesian, uh, you know, uh, type of explanation that it's okay to uh, choose interest rates. Mm-hmm. And to manipulate those interest rates based on our our needs, I think you know the the work of von Mises and others would suggest that that that's artificial, right? And that yeah. that creates imbalances that ultimately uh, have to revert to a true final state of rest in the yeah. market. And this idea of a final state of rest is is pervades von Mises' work too, where this part of the market where the buys and sells are all balanced, and we've mm-hmm. created this kind of perfect stasis. The even, evenly rotating economy, I think he calls it. Right. And the same thing exists 
as it relates to this this uh, parable, the this uh, par- uh, the parable of Nibelugan and, mm-hmm. and Johan and and Gunther and, yeah. and Siegfried, where you know, in a state of rest, right, the the cost of capital is ex- exactly equal to the rate of return of any entrepreneurial activity, and so the economy mm-hmm. is essentially in a permanent state of rest. Now, obviously, that's not. That's only the the realm of history books and textbooks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality of of, of of entrepreneurial activities in the economy is much more messy mm-hmm. uh, over time. Yeah, yeah. It's he uses those imaginary constructions like the evenly rotating economy just to diffuse um, some fallacies about economics. Because in that case too, where um, in the in the case of the evenly rotating economy, the need the demand for cash goes to zero. Because you can perfectly map all of your your inflows and outflows such that you can you never need money, right? Money is the optionality against uncertainty. You don't know what you're going to need it for, but in that environment of perfect information, you don't need optionality. So right. it's interesting the way he does that. And then two on the natural interest rate, you know that's such an important point because again, we're conditioned to think that the interest rate is some policy tool of government, but it's not at all what it is. Again, it's a natural market phenomenon and it has to do with our time preference, right? It's ultimately at what rate do I prefer receiving capital now versus later? The more I want it now, uh, the higher price I will charge you effectively, um, which is also reflected in the price of money. But this is, this is, applicable to all forms of capital, really, as, as he makes right. the point. And again, that's such an interesting little known point, because if we did have this natural, you know, we, we know as free market capitalists, we want the market to set prices on all things. You set, you have a, a pricing czar or some form of government intervention setting pricing, you're only going to create surpluses or shortages, right? You're going to distort right. the market. Yet we tolerate it in the market for money, like it's the norm which is the most important market in the world, clearly. Um, And it gets a little more interesting too, when you start considering its relationship to civilization and the moral standard itself. It's like when when you're tweaking that interest rate, you're creating these distortions in the marketplace. And that's why I think, you know, so many people have this, you know, they're plagued by this short termism because, you know, we're just, We've narrowed our intertemporal sight, if you will, to be very uh, minimal, and then so right. people they're incentivized to take on more leverage, and right. when and, the tide because, goes out, because, more people are caught swimming naked. And it's because the 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 natural interest rate when it falls, it should be a reflection of real savings. Yes, it should be exactly. a reflection of falling time preferences throughout the economy, where savers are choosing, yes. uh, using their free choice in a free market economy to save more of their capital for, for future, for the future. Right. Um, when you artificially manipulate that, right. You completely change the incentives, you create perverse incentives. And, Mm -hmm. and so it's very related to this, this, this concept of money too, because the Austrians believe money must originate more organically as a useful Mm -hmm. commodity. Right. Mm -hmm. They, and and they don't believe that money is completely neutral. Right. So Austrians Mm -hmm. believe Money always takes a side in a sense, and so mm-hmm. if you create money, right, as a as a fiat entity, as a government, you're you are choosing sides mm-hmm. because some parties over others are going to benefit from your uh, manipulation. So yeah. in the same way that uh, we would prefer a natural organic interest rate that actually reflects free market actors in a free economy, 
uh, we would also prefer a sort of a naturally emerging free market money. Now that wasn't really that easy or possible before Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of ways, you know, Bitcoin is the natural manifestation of the Austrian desire to have this naturally emerging uh, commodity as a tool. Uh, and, you know, as you're reading books like this, I, I find this constantly recently when I read a book like uh, the Dow of Capital by, by Spitzig, I keep waiting for the moment where he talks about Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm always, uh, I always chuckle a little bit because I realized how early it was. He wrote this in 2013 and very few people understood uh, Bitcoin then, let alone to the, today. Uh, but but Bitcoin actually does solve for some of the issues that that Spitznagel brings up in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know that the Mises regression theorem, where which was put forth by Mises, he said that you know something had to emerge as a marketable commodity before it could become money later. People have tried to use this to refute Bitcoin. They're like, oh well, Bitcoin was never a marketable commodity before it was money. But I think, um, I don't know, there's a couple of ways to look at that. One is the things that comprise Bitcoin were clearly useful before Bitcoin, right? Like software and microchips and ledgers and um, all of these tools, very basic tools in a lot of ways. Um, But it it also, the theoretical point just doesn't hold up to practice because you're like, okay, you're trying to refute something. You're trying to refute Bitcoin theoretically. But it's like, just look what look what is happening in practice. Like Bitcoin has a monetary premium. It's pure monetary premium, in fact. It trades 24 by 7. Mm-hmm. It's a whatever, trillion dollar asset. So you're trying to refute practice with theory, which I think is just kind of self-defeating. And then on the point of, of monetary neutrality, I mean, Bitcoin's so important in that way. Because like whatever we monetize, we end up making more of. We just create an incentive to make more of that thing. You know, gold's a great example what 10, maybe 20% of its market cap is industrial use. The other 80% is store value. So Mm -hmm. we're like mining and producing a lot of gold, but really someone joked us that we pull it out of one hole in the ground to go and stick it in another hole in the ground, you know, beneath a central bank and we call it money, but it's really, it's the, the proof of work component to gold that made it useful money among its other properties. But with Bitcoin, we get something unique in that, we've effectively monetized energy, right? Directly monetized energy. So what does that mean for the world? We're going to produce a lot more energy and a lot more abundantly and more cheap, more cheaply. So, you know, I think the long run outcome of this game, the Bitcoin game specifically is that, and you know, energy is the number one input to any economic activity. It's just going to be to increase aggregate wealth through the monetization of energy alone, not to mention all the disintermediation it accomplishes, which unlocks even more wealth creation. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. I want to add <laughs> just uh, one idea, which is this idea that value is subjective, right? And and you know, if you go back even further in the Austrian tradition to Karl Menger, like sort of the founder, uh, talked a lot about marginal utility, right? And u- utilities there because people uh, use things in order to to achieve some sort of an end. Right. So based on their real world actions. And so you can argue all you want about whether something has value or not. But if people find that it has utility, they're able to use it to achieve some end, then, then, it, then it has value. Right. Uh, right? And, and I think that's important to say. Absolutely. Um, can't argue with, with free market action. Right? If people want it and they're willing to expend resources for it, then so be it.
you know, Spitznagel uses this term intertemporal. We've been throwing it around a little bit here. Uh, how do we define that? And what, you know, what does that actually mean for people in the real world? So, so I think a lot of, particularly from the investing side, people think of things as either being kind of short-term, like the here and now or long-term. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of, sort of no intermediate level in, in there, right? And so time is a key variable in, in everything that these guys uh, talk about on the Austrian side. But it's the intertemporal component is moving from the immediate to the intermediate, right? And expanding your depth of field so you can see a succession of future times. And he talks about like connecting them almost like a, like a video reel, right? Or mm-hmm. as a succession of of uh, photographs in a movie versus a snapshot mm. um, and seeing the long span of forward movement. So instead of just seeing here and now, and then imagining yourself at 75 sitting in a rocking chair, mm-hmm. being able to imagine all of the moments as snapshots between now and 75, mm. uh, almost individually, right? So being able to expand your frame of reference beyond the here and now and the, the far future. So instead of using uh, just a telescope, right? To see the future or a microscope to see today, mm-hmm. being able to see the entire succession of future movements as, as, as sort of a movie. That's the way I conceptualize it. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. So increasing both your depth of field across time, but also viewing it in a more dynamic way. You're actually looking at the sequence of events leading to these individual snapshots versus just the static snapshots themselves. Correct. Where each snapshot leads to the next in a chain. Yeah. of events with with connections right um I, I think that's an important part of capital formation it's also an important part of investing mm-hmm. intelligently so yeah yeah you could also maybe say it's sort of like a blockchain like perception or um not just conceiving of future balance sheet snapshots you're actually considering the p l bridges between those points along the way yeah, I mean, look, it's it's absolutely connected because each block header has the previous block hash right. uh, appended to it. It's literally why it's called a blockchain, right? Yeah. Each every node knows that it's the next block based on the, the what's in that block header. Right. Yeah, he really needs to write a sequel to this book with Bitcoin included, and may, maybe you, if he denominated some... these investment strategies in Bitcoin too, that could be interesting. <laughs> He probably should have Bitcoin in his main fund, but remember he's buddies with Taleb, so oh, yeah. uh, that, may, that may be maybe a challenge uh, philosophically. Right. That's funny. Yeah, uh, that still makes no sense to me. I mean, I don't. I'm not a mathematician, but I've heard several mathematicians speak out against Taleb's black paper math. So it seems like he's taken some kind of personal beef against Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Look, it, pride is pride and ego are uh, they can be powerful in some contexts, but they could also be your your downfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. So, should we jump into the practical application of this? Like, what? How does he encode all of this wisdom into these investment strategies, which I think he calls Austrian investing one and two. Yeah, so he breaks it down a couple different ways. He starts with this um, this ratio, this Faustman ratio, which he uses initially. It was initially designed to like value forest land and decide you know when to actually uh, conduct forestry versus when to uh, just sit on the land or even sell the land. 
Um, and he evolves that into something that's called the Tobin's equity Q ratio. He changes it to the, the Mysian stationary stationarity index, mm. which is basically just us corporate equity divided by corporate net worth. Right. So it's like a measurement of effectively like uh, how overvalued equities might be relative to mm. their kind of underlying net worth. So when the value is over one, uh, monetary intervention, you know, is probably causing inflation and, and the titles to capital. Uh, obviously, higher starting values in this ratio lead to lower expected returns. All the work on equity markets uh, shows that. Um, and so he he basically says, "Listen, when this when this index is over one, you should consider not being in the market at all. Like that would be the simplest." way to mm-hmm. practice Austrian economics. So like, for example, right now, when the index is closer to 1.7, you should probably not be deploying uh, new capital and equity markets. You may even consider selling, right? That would be mm-hmm. what an, like a hardcore Austrian would do. Now, most professional investors are not going to do that because they get paid to manage assets and make decisions and they get measured in monthly and quarterly increments. It's right. very hard to have the discipline and patience to do that. So he says, look, here's, here's an alternative way of thinking about it. One simple, naive way to invest like an Austrian is to put 99.5% of the portfolio in the S&P 500 and put the remaining 0.5% in long dated out of the money, not long dated, sorry, short dated two month, uh, you know, out of the money, about 30% out of the money uh, S&P puts Mm -hmm. such that if uh, the market were to sell off suddenly, because basically anytime markets are at this high uh, Mysian stationarity index ratio, Mm -hmm. there's a good chance they will sell off. And he makes the delineation between black swans, which are sort of unforeseen, but remote events Mm -hmm. and events that he considers to be foreseen. So like a stock market crash, which should happen every decade or so Mm -hmm. historically, right? And a pretty regular interval. And it's much more likely to happen historically based on the, uh, you know, the underlying valuation of the market at that time. So he uses this index to to tell you whether or not the market's overvalued or undervalued. And then he says, look, when the market's overvalued, you want to be buying puts uh, on, the, on, on the S&P 500 two months out. Um, every month you roll the position forward. So you essentially mm-hmm. uh, liquidate the, the, the puts as you get to the end of the month and you roll them again two months out. And then uh, the, the second part of Austrian economics is what do you do when you actually uh, have a downturn in the economy? So like when the the puts actually pay off, which he did really well in 2008, 2009. And again, during the pandemic, because those puts put off is he takes that capital while the titles, the capital are temporarily low, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a, there's a sell-off, there's a market route, people are scared, they're liquidating assets. And he turns around and buys uh, what he calls Siegfrieds, which are essentially just high return on invested capital companies. So companies where the returns on the capital invested are, are unusually high. Um, and he, over time, believes that that uh, process will yield essentially two points uh, better than the just a pure equity approach over long periods of time. Mm. Uh, the challenge is that for any uh, shorter period of time, three, five, seven years, right, the, that, that actual strategy may underperform. It's very hard for professional investors to run it. The other thought that came to me as I was reading it again for the second time is that there seems to be some structural changes in the market, particularly in the last five to 10 years as it relates to technology mm-hmm. and as it relates to kind of the growth in the digital world where you're seeing increasing share of companies' balance sheets denominated in IP. 
mm-hmm. right? Where IP heavy companies traded higher valuations. They, they generally show higher returns over time. And this ratio that, that Spitznagel is using doesn't really capture that very well. I think it also underestimates the growth in MMT and modern mm-hmm. monetary theory and the extent at which politicians and, and Federal Reserve personnel are willing to push uh, interest rates down far longer and further than anyone ever uh, uh, perceived was possible before. Mm-hmm. And, and so that leads to situations where, you know, for for probably a decade or more, it looked like this Austrian, um, you know, philosophy would suddenly work. Mm-hmm. But what actually happened is, is that markets from 2013 till now essentially went almost straight up with the exception of a, of a demand shock uh, last year caused by the, uh, by, by the, the initial response to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'm a huge fan of the, uh, of the philosophies that Spitznagel uh, talks about in the book, but I wonder to some extent whether certain components of it have broken down a little bit right. in, a, in a structural way, not just a cyclical way. Like some people would say, hey, you're just saying that things are different this time. And I'm, I'm not really saying that. What I'm saying is there are fundamental structural things that are changing in the economy. I mean, 20 years ago, if you told me that five technology companies would be the biggest companies in the world, I, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah. Right. I would have thought ExxonMobil and Walmart would still be some of the biggest companies, right. but um, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, et cetera. Yeah. These are real businesses with real earnings power, real products that everybody uses. And so the idea that you can measure their value entirely using this sort of my, uh, and stationary index, which mm-hmm. just looks at their corporate net worth. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's capturing all the value creation that's actually happened in the economy. That's really interesting. Yeah. So he, this is somewhat of a barbell strategy, right? You're just buying a lot of low risk S and P 500 index, but then also some very high risk out of the money, short-term puts um, right. specifically when this uh, was it the, Mises, Mises stationarity index, I think, is above a certain threshold. You're above, basically above one. Yeah. You're betting on regression to the mean or even past the mean. Um, so that's really interesting. But it is a very low time preference investment strategy because this thing will bleed capital for a decade, every right? Month. Yeah, every, every, every month. Yeah. Every single month it, it bleeds until until that market shock comes, in which point you you clean up and you look like a genius and the Journalists write articles saying you're you're so smart. Yeah, uh, they don't write articles on the months where you just lose money. Right, and the year the years you just lose money relative to to the S and P five hundred. Yeah, uh, and he, I mean, it's massive too. I think in quarter one, twenty twenty, it returned like over four thousand percent, something staggering. Right, right, yeah, right. and and it speaks to this intertemporal waiting and patience. Of, yeah recognizing that it doesn't matter whether you lose 1% a month for seven years, if you make 4,000%, right? right, In, in one month, uh, that more than makes up for all of those uh, losing months. Most people do not have the fortitude yeah. right, or the patience to take the small cuts and the pain mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. way in order to get to that, to get to that kind of final mm-hmm. spot uh, down the line. But that goes to, goes to roundabout, uh, strategic positional advantage. It's all yeah. of the themes in the book, uh, you know, encapsulated in this, but in this you, ultimate strategy. Yeah, no, excellent. But you have this, I guess, a counter argument to some extent that structural or fundamental changes in the global economy, largely related to the digital age and or government intervention could perhaps 
drive this ratio higher where maybe this thing, uh, the economy could run hotter for longer periods of time before correcting to the norm. Is that what you're thinking? It, it's not, it's not necessarily that they can run hotter. It's, it's more that valuations could be driven more in a sustainable long-term way by, by technology and IP mm. in a way that would cause a, a sort of naive, uh, you know, ratio like the stationarity index, which is really like more of a like price to book. Yeah. Right. Like, like a classic value investors looking at the book value of the assets. Like for many years, there was a line item in PLs that said property, plant, and equipment. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, right. That right. seems pretty outdated yeah. nowadays. I mean, companies don't even, not only do they not own their own buildings, they barely want their employees to come to work right. in 2022. Right. Next year, like a lot of companies are going to be going fully remote. Yeah. A lot of the value, the flywheel that makes, an Apple or a Google or a, a Square or Netflix successful is not encapsulated cleanly in corporate net worth yeah. in the same way that it used to be. And so it's not that like it's it, it's not that the economy needs to run hot. It's simply that the ratio you're using, the metric you're using to just dis, to decide when and how to run the strategy may, may actually not capture uh, you know, when the market's really uh, overvalued. Mm. Because uh, that's really what you're trying to do with that index. You're trying to swing bigger and swing harder when the conditions are are best set up, when the odds are essentially in your advantage. The yeah. same thing you would do, like when poker, you push all in when you think you have 80% or better, when you think you have aces versus a lower pocket pair, or, right? Uh, right? You, you know, it's it's that sort of way of thinking. And if if your in if your ratio is broken because of structural changes, then you may believe earlier in the cycle than than it's than uh, it's actually a good time. You may believe it's actually a good time to swing bigger. So these, I mean, perhaps summing that up to the network effects being priced in on the market could justify a higher ratio. I I think that maybe you could flip it around and say maybe to make this make more sense for the next three, four, five decades, you would need to revise the ratio to account for other uh, sources of sort of balance sheet value beyond just hard assets and mm-hmm. corporate net worth, you know, uh, uh, assets minus liabilities, right? Because so much of the value in the future is not going to be so cleanly encapsulated in traditional gap accounting. Yeah. I'm thinking of a company like Facebook, if it's never been acquired, there's going to be no goodwill on the balance sheet. So it would have all of this kind of economic moat that's just not accounted for, right? The net, right. whatever makes Facebook, Facebook, I'm so, I'm calling it network effects. I mean, there's a lot of other things you could call it, I suppose. That's just not reflected on the balance sheet. Yeah, the market cap should far exceed the balance sheet because a lot of the value is off balance sheet, Yeah, right? Like your engagement with their platform is not on the balance sheet. Right. It should flow through over time and into their, uh, you know, quarterly financials. Uh, but you know, I, I think this idea of using equity tail hedging makes a lot of sense at the mm-hmm. end of a, a market cycle. Like I think a lot of a lot more people could benefit from say owning out of the money puts, right? Like I was even thinking about adding it to my own portfolio over the last couple of years. But but I've started to think of barbell investing a little bit differently from that, where mm-hmm. I actually think Bitcoin should be a part of the barbell. So that, like my preferred. Right. Retirement portfolio now is approximately twenty percent Bitcoin and about eighty percent traditional, similar to 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 uh, Spitznagel's Siegfried's these high ROI companies. But I'm thinking mm. more about 
lower multiple, higher yielding value equities where a retired individual can achieve all the fiat cash flow that they need from the equity side, but they can achieve all of the long-term purchasing power increase they need from the Bitcoin side. And you don't need to use a lot of Bitcoin. I go up to 20%. Yeah. You can probably, historically, you could have made that five or 10% as your barbell and it would have done really well. But I think today, like 2021 with Bitcoin at 47,000 or whatever it is, I think up to 20% of the barbell can be Bitcoin. And that portfolio is going to exceed the returns of almost every traditional 60-40 portfolio and every sort of Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch yeah. portfolio that that is built for retirees. And, you know, it's it's still early, right? For, for this way of thinking, like, most people who are retired don't even think about adding Bitcoin uh, to their portfolio. But I think owning Bitcoin is a way, it's like a reverse option, right? Like he he's basically insuring against cataclysmic declines in asset prices, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then using that insurance, the returns on that insurance to accumulate more assets. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is is sort of flipping that around and saying, look, I don't need to own these derivative products. I can just own hard sound money and it will organically over three, five, seven year periods accumulate additional purchasing power in a way that effectively does the same thing. You could sell it, you could sell some of your Bitcoin in five or seven years and accumulate uh, more traditional assets or mm-hmm. income producing assets to uh, achieve a longer retirement. I think it's all about your time preference, right? In a sense, this, this Austrian economic uh, tail hedging strategy that, that Spitznagel proposes actually in short periods has a has a sort of higher time preference, right? It's wanting to take advantage today of short-term routes in the market today. Whereas Bitcoin on a point-to-point basis actually takes advantage of long-term uh, purchasing power increases. In any given month, we have no idea what Bitcoin's fiat uh, you know, pegged return will be. It could be negative. Mm-hmm. It could be mm-hmm. substantially negative. But on a point-to-point basis, if you really understand Bitcoin, it actually ensures greater purchasing power over longer timeframes. Mm-hmm. So effectively, maybe the best Austrian portfolio is a barbell that includes traditional value and high ROIC-oriented uh, equity, core uh, Bitcoin and cold storage that's not levered, right? Not mm-hmm. a derivative, just Bitcoin cold storage. And and a small percentage of the portfolio in a tail hedging mm-hmm, uh, put strategy. Mm-hmm. I think that portfolio seems bulletproof to me if you look out five or 10 years, because you essentially win in almost any economic environment with that type of portfolio. Let's spitball something here. Cause I'm, <laughs> what if you had a strategy that was 99.5% Bitcoin, or call it 99% Bitcoin, 1% uh, these short term puts that you're rolling, two month puts you're rolling month to month. And then you get into a, a tail event, Bitcoin, you know, whatever, say it's a March 2020 type event, Bitcoin draws down 50%, but the puts pay, right, massively, whatever that is. And then you roll uh, the put proceeds into Bitcoin that's in a drawdown. And so long as the, what I'm thinking here is if you really think far out and you're denominating yourself in Bitcoin, you're not so concerned about the dollar denominated returns, that might be a really potent strategy. Because now you're buying Bitcoin at a discount when these puts are paying, and you're, so, you're, so you're, you're taking a lot of territory on the network. Are you talking about a direct hedge against the Bitcoin exposure using Bitcoin puts? Or are you talking about no, S&P no, no puts, puts on the S and P? The okay. same puts he's using, but just denominating the whole thing in Bitcoin. You're just treating Bitcoin as the safe end of the barbell versus the risk. Yeah. So I mean, there's a couple of potential issues, right? One is controlling for cash flows. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It's the same problem that that insurance companies have long duration liabilities, right? But but they they have a need for some short term ability to pay off. Like a, let's say some like a policyholder dies tomorrow, you need to have some liquidity to do that. Mm-hmm. But you also need to have assets performing at a high enough rate that you will be able to pay off future liabilities. And mm-hmm. so, uh, if you do not need cash flow, then certainly a ninety nine point five percent Bitcoin, particularly if it's in cold storage, mm-hmm. um, you know, might might make sense. I think most people do need cash flow, particularly retired individuals. So like you have to delineate between people who require cash flow and people that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, like the the other the other issue is just the decreasing correlation between the S&P and Bitcoin over time. So if the S&P and Bitcoin were perfectly correlated, then that seems like a really good strategy. The challenge is, is that over time they 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 shouldn't be correlated in my view. And so you may not get uh the exact uh, you know, situation you want where yeah. S&P sells down, you, you collect the put uh, yeah, returns yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're able to roll it into Bitcoin at some artificially suppressed price because Bitcoin might actually go up. Right? Yeah, I, I think I agree with the the longer duration correlations breaking down, but it seems like in those major risk off events, the Bitcoin's still very much a risk on asset. Like a March that's 2020 that's- style liquidity crisis, yeah. I would expect if that happened today, Bitcoin would draw down. Fifty percent, probably. That's that's been the the recent history, right, mm-hmm. of, of Bitcoin. But I I don't think we should delude ourselves into believing that that recent history will uh, continue forever. And uh, I wouldn't build a, a twenty year because I'm a ultra long duration investment yeah. uh, thinker. So like I wouldn't build a twenty or thirty year strategy for my mother's retirement. Right. That includes hedging an asset that I don't actually think is related long-term, um, yeah. even though in the short term, it seems like a reasonable protection. But I think if you bought puts against your equity portfolio, and then also use Bitcoin as part of your barbell, those three things together actually are, are really interesting. And you also solve my initial issue, which is how does my mother pay her fiat bills right. uh, next month, which right now she's paying using some of the most boring dividend paying stocks in the world, you know, soda companies and healthcare companies and energy pipelines. And these are core assets. They're not going away no matter how successful Bitcoin is. You're still going to need natural gas to bridge us to a cleaner energy future. Like you still need natural gas pipelines, right? People are still going to drink sodas. People are still going to need to go to a doctor, right? They're still going to need pharmaceuticals, whether you like, whether you like that or not. And so my strategy is like, well, how do you win in all environments? Well, uh, you, you you own equities that are when they get cheap and they provide high enough cash flow to justify the risk. You own Bitcoin because you you know that fiat currencies eventually are going to go into decline, and you know they're going to print too much money and manipulate mm-hmm. the economy, and it's ultimately going to drive the purchasing power of Bitcoin up over time. It's a virtual certainty. Mm-hmm. And if you want to hedge all of it with S and P puts, a small amount of S and P puts, and take that as Clip would say, the small losses every single month. Mm-hmm. Uh, for that big return, go for it. Even Spitznagel in the book, though, does advise people that look like most people are not sophisticated enough yeah. to actually use options intelligently. Yeah. Um, and so he says, don't run out. Don't run out and do what I <laughs> say I'm doing. This is a highly sophisticated strategy. Um, you know, it, most people don't even, I, I've seen this with my father-in-law and my mother recently, like they don't want to check their investment portfolio <laughs> even every month, right? So they're not going to want to go in find the market price for their for their yeah. puts and then acquire the next month out roll the contract forward right. figure out whether they're paying the right price wait for the uh, 
you know, their, their limit order to, to fill. Yeah. Uh, right. And then do all the calculations to make sure that all made sense. So, yeah, yeah. Agreed. It is tricky and complex. There's a huge learning curve, but it seems like some of this could be, I mean, put into an algorithm of some kind if it's, especially if it's based on percentages, right. And you're just using indexes in Bitcoin. You just say, here are the allocations. Here's, you know, I want to buy a two month put, roll it each month. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be an ETF, Robert. Honestly, there should be a Austrian, uh, you know, investment strategy ETF that just holds uh, high ROIC uh, companies in some sort of a proprietary designed index, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that uses the overlay of valuation, not just because the highest ROIC companies, a lot of them, these technology companies are, are at least right now trading at very high valuation. So it's yeah. probably not uh, necessarily a good idea to pile into those mm-hmm. today if with new capital, but then also runs the put strategy embedded within that fund. So the the end uh, owner of that ETF never has to touch uh, yeah. the puts or the index itself. They just they just own the end result of that strategy. I could see that uh, being interesting. And it, it is sort of a liquid alternative strategy, right? Which is a really hot topic over the last couple of decades, which is how do we take these alternative strategies, private equity, hedge funds, VC, et cetera, and turn them into a consumer, like an in-consumer consumable product that's easy for somebody to buy in their yeah. brokerage account. So maybe maybe that's something we should do. Maybe we should do the Breedlove <laughs> Austrian uh, ETF strategy. I'm surprised Spitznagel has not done something like this. I, th- I think part of it is that because he was the pioneer yeah. with Taleb of, of kind of doing this early uh, tail risk hedging and kind of even created the nomenclature around how it works, there's some alpha and just executing it privately yeah. yourself. Right. And right. if you turn it into a mass market product, you sort of commoditize your own right, right, right. edge. Yeah. Just, right. And right. so he, he's not a humanitarian. Like he doesn't, he doesn't make any qualms about that. He's a, yeah. a unabashed free market capitalist. And so yeah. he's maximizing his edge uh, in the same way anybody would, you mm-hmm. know, when they're still printing money. Right. right? Why, when you're printing money, why commoditize your edge and turn it into a consumer product? So, yeah. Yeah. Back to, Clips paradox, right? If 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 he did that, it would sort of be a self defeating strategy. But he could make a ton of money in the short run. I'm I'm just thinking of kind of the Barry Silbert move here, where well, he already is making a ton of money, and so why would he want the additional scrutiny, the additional challenges of running a consumer facing product when you run a private fund? As you know, mm-hmm. you can raise money from very sophisticated people, mm-hmm. right? They understand. They either understand or they don't, but they're not going to lock up their capital for two, three, four, five, seven years mm-hmm. unless they really understand the strategy. The problem with retail, as we're seeing with Kathy Wood, is even if you're fundamentally right about the direction of the world, you, clients always want to pull their capital right at the time right, of maximum right, right. advantage. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so you run this retail Austrian ETF. Yeah. Guess what's going to happen right before the puts are going to pay? You start dealing funds with gonna be down to 40, they're going to be yeah. down, it's going to be the funds going to be down from half a billion to forty two million on the day the puts pay. Yeah. And so the actual real experience return of that end consumer user is much lower than the actual return of the fund itself, which is sort of doesn't care about money flows. It just executes. That's a good strategy. point. It's you're you're better off running the low, the low time preference strategy privately, so you don't have to deal with so much high time preference clientele. <laughs> Correct. But we could create the Breedlove, right, uh, Austrian ETF, and we could compete directly with Spitznagel. There's no real barrier to entry if you have the capital and you're willing to seed it 
you're willing to get the right attorney and get the right custodian. It's, I don't think it's rocket science to, to run a basic version of this Austrian portfolio yourself. Interesting. Well, yeah, I I couldn't help, but I sort of had the same thoughts as you when I was reading this book. I'm like, why is he not talking about Bitcoin? (laughs) Like if you had one of these Austrian investing strategies, one or two, just denominated in Austrian money, it seemed to make all the sense in the world. Um, or maybe not denominated in, but um, well, clearly you would report because ideally it would be outperforming Bitcoin. I don't know if it actually would, but you would report your position in both dollars and Bitcoin, I'm sure. And then Bitcoin would also be a component of the fund. Yeah. I mean, if you're running, if you're running uh, a, a consumer facing fund in the U S for the foreseeable future, you're going to be reporting your returns in dollars for sure. Uh, because that's where you're going to be raising your, Yep. capital, the entire reporting structure is, yep. is based around that. You could definitely evolve the fund over time um, to, to report in, in Bitcoin. But uh, you know, I don't think anybody should be investing in anything with the idea of trying to beat Bitcoin, right? Because yeah. I think that's going to be a loser's game. Just like trying to beat an index of equities is, is pretty darn hard over long yeah. Yeah. periods of time. Because a naive strategy sometimes beats the most sophisticated strategy. And so just yeah. the naive strategy of saying, Hey, I think Bitcoin's the best money in history. I think it's the most important Austrian investment, by the way, it's not, mm-hmm. not in the book, but it's the most important investment an Austrian could make in the future. And I know a lot of uh, Bitcoiners say that uh, Bitcoin is savings technology. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but the reality mm-hmm. is it's competing for capital flows from other assets that people consider to be investments. So it basically sort of becomes a moot point. Like you can call it savings, you can call it an investment, but effectively it's competing in the investment marketplace because mm-hmm. a lot of the capital that comes to Bitcoin comes from those other places. But most people will do quite well by simply holding Bitcoin and skipping mm-hmm. all uh, yeah. equity, tail hedging, all Reich screens, right? Mm-hmm. All uh, entrepreneurial endeavors directly. If you already have capital, you probably a big chunk of it should be a Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, yeah, during its monetization phase, it's just kind of sucking all the air out of the room. Like it's going to draw capital flows out of all these other investments. But long run, it's not technically an investment. You know, it's just it's money. So, right. um, yeah, interesting kind of semantics issue there. And then, yeah, it's funny. You know, everyone still thinks in dollars and denominates themselves in dollars. But I it's tweeted this out the other day. Like I'm at this point in my own thinking where if it don't make sats, it don't make sense. Like <laughs> what? Because otherwise you just hold Bitcoin, right? Well, fiat fiat cash flows can make sats though. They're just of one course, step from yes, conversion, yeah. right? So so there's still value to building fiat businesses, right? And, and, I, I guess fact, I'm, I'm I'm focused specifically on the investment side. Like I still generate a fiat cash flow and have you know fiat real income right. and all of that. But just looking at your your capital nest egg position, like you want to be growing that in terms of sats. Otherwise, you're not doing it right. I'm not going to disagree with you. I don't want any more heat from the maxis either, Robert, honestly. <laughs> I don't give a shit about that so much. It's just, I don't know. I feel maybe like I'm identifying with Spitzenegel as like very ruthless, almost free market capitalist and trying to gain as much territory on this network as possible. Like clearly respecting, like within a moral framework, I'm not going to go out and like $5 wrench attack people to try to get some Bitcoin because I just don't think the risk and reward is there. And clearly there's a moral line, like you'd be violating property rights, which is the whole, you know, the whole philosophical and ethical case for Bitcoin is you're, you're re-implementing inviolable property, which I think is 
the root cause of many problems in the world, central banking, et cetera. But within that bound of you know life, liberty, and property, I want as much Bitcoin as I can possibly get. Because if this thing is going to take over the world, this is legacy intergenerational type wealth. I think the application of this Spitznagel uh, approach for Bitcoin would be effectively 99 plus percent Bitcoin and then 1% Bitcoin or half a percent of Bitcoin put options mm. rolled every couple of months. Because you can, the, the options markets are more healthy, right? There's more liquidity every day. Uh, to to justify doing that. And therefore, you could take advantage of those swoons that happen on a much more condensed timescale. I mean, you see 20% drawdowns in Bitcoin, even in in bull markets, like every couple months. Yeah. And so, so actually, that strategy may work better. It just depends on how those options are priced, right? Because, because the S&P 500 is so liquid and because the volatility is lower, and because those extreme events are more rare, the options are priced at the right level that you can buy them in a very small percentage of the overall portfolio, 0.5%. I think because because Bitcoin is more volatile, and my suspicion without having done the work is that the, those options are priced at a high enough level that it would be harder to run the strategy, but it still might work in Bitcoin. But the big risk there would be the opposite, right? Like a Bitcoin having a really bombastic move to the upside. And then you actually get exercised. Well, if you just own long put options, you just lose your premium. You don't you you don't have to lose any of your your Bitcoin because you just uh, have the right uh, you're to just sell. Buying the option, you're not selling. Yeah, the you're you're yeah. buying the puts, right? So you're you're buying the the right to right. sell Bitcoin. So you would buy, let's say, two month out, yeah, twenty five percent or thirty percent below. So if if Bitcoin dropped from 50,000 to 20,000 suddenly, mm -hmm. right? Then then those puts would pay and you'd be able to turn around and use that capital to acquire more Bitcoin at 20,000. Right, right, right. Right. And so, so not, none of the options selling, that would be But but what you are doing over time is if is is dampening your long-term returns because if if Bitcoin ultimately ends up at 2 million, 3 million, 5 million or whatever, right? There's a chance that the cost of running that additional option strategy, mm -hmm. uh, depending on how it plays out, uh, actually costed you return relative to just a pure buy and hold mm -hmm. strategy. Right. For some people though, the the emotional benefits, uh, and by the way, emotions are not left out of the Austrian tradition, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, a number of uh, of the great Austrian thinkers talk a lot about emotions and the and the role they play in time preference and economic decisions, et cetera. But but so one reason to actually own puts on Bitcoin is simply so that you can sleep at night and not worry at all about short-term movements. Because in, in effect, if Bitcoin goes down enough, your uh, you know hedged uh, tail hedging strategy actually pays off and allows you to acquire more Bitcoin. Right. So you can right. actually be happier uh, you know, when the market falls, if the market goes up, yeah, you, you slightly underperformed a pure buy and hold yeah. strategy, but who cares? Maybe that, maybe that cost was worth you sleeping well at night and controlling your emotions actually allowed you to ride the 20 year journey or the 30 year journey of, of Bitcoin's monetization versus right. getting scared out. Like a lot of people were in 2017, 2018, and mm -hmm. probably will be again at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. But I guess yeah, to your earlier points is whatever is going to give you that peace of mind. Because I feel like now actually thinking through the strategy out loud, I feel like I still may get more peace of mind just being in a bit pure Bitcoin buy and hold. 
Well, you, you will, because you have deep conviction that goes beyond the, the price. Your conviction is not uh, a function of the price. Your conviction is a function of very deep uh, uh, work on the first principles of Bitcoin, understanding its properties, understanding energy, understanding the history and the context of other monies. Mm. And so you also understand that the linkage between Bitcoin and fiat is a short-term phenomenon. Yeah. And so the, the pricing that you're seeing on the screen is actually uh, the product of distortion right. itself, yeah. right? And yeah. so, and so until Bitcoin fully monetizes and becomes truly one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, and, and Bitcoin's actually uh, reflected by the real world assets and outcomes that it drives, mm-hmm. right? So can it actually build a home? Right. right. Can it actually acquire an energy asset in, mm-hmm. in the real world? Um, and, and you get away from this second order version of Bitcoin's value, which is what is the government's money printing machine say mm-hmm. about the value of Bitcoin? Right. Because as Ross Stevens and others have said, right, it's it's not Bitcoin that's volatile. It's fiat that's volatile. <laughs> but that ref, that volatility on the fiat side reflects itself into Bitcoin and makes it appear that Bitcoin's actually volatile when it, when it's actually the, the exact opposite. So uh, again, like for you, uh, Robert, your, your strategy of just being long Bitcoin, owning Bitcoin, keeping it as your sound money for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, maybe at some point you liquidate some to, to, to buy a surfboard or whatever, right? Like that probably works for you, but yeah. for somebody else who's more freaked out by volatility, who hasn't done the work, yeah. who doesn't understand Bitcoin in context, who doesn't understand at a deeper level, a hedged a tailhead strategy like what Spitzagel's applying may help them dampen their yeah. the volatility of their emotions, which then allows them to experience the full uh, long-term return string of Bitcoin in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. You know, this is interesting. Like, I'm reminded here of that concept, linguistic relativity, which I think is also called the wharf saper hypothesis. But basically, the language that you think in has some influence on the very thoughts you can have, actually. So actually, the German language is known to be one of the most sophisticated languages. And we've had some of the greatest thinkers in the world that speak German because that language lends itself to very sophisticated thought patterns, whereas something, you know, like more romantic languages, uh, you know, Spanish or Italian or something, they're, they're less scientifically useful. Um, But I was just thinking here, it's like, okay, because I'm thinking in sats, I'm having an entire different viewpoint on Bitcoin versus someone thinking in dollars that would actually be concerned about price volatility. So it's like yeah, it's, it's not just a, it's not just a different viewpoint, Robert. It's an entirely different experience. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's a different software having, install. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm like to be totally candid. I'm not fully there yet, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't price everything in my life in Bitcoin yet because I don't have a translation point from my Bitcoin wealth to my traditional wealth, my offline wealth, my fiat wealth. I'm a business builder. I have equity in 60 or 70 companies, including a lot of private companies. I mean, that that equity value, I see it. I know it's there, but it has no impact on my my life. I don't even know how to translate that to Bitcoin. I'm hoping that some of these companies, you know, when they ultimately go public or or they get acquired, that that a big chunk of that will end up in Bitcoin. But I couldn't even begin to tell you what I think that's worth and sound value right because it's just such a different too many such a different world yeah and to be fair i don't like i denominate my capital position in bitcoin but when i'm day-to-day eating lunch or buying whatever i'm still thinking in dollars too um but i try to just have this very 
you know, short-term dollar P&L, I guess, uh, the flow, my economic flows in life, I'm thinking in dollars, but then my stock, my economic stock, I'm trying to denominate in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. No, I want to see, I want to see the stock expanding all the time in, in terms of sats. So with you on that. Yeah, dude, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, this book, I highly recommend anyone that's got the patience and the fortitude to go read it. Because as you can see by the conversation we're having here, uh, what I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you the honest truth. The first time I read it, I had a high time preference in that uh, as an investor, I wanted to know the answer. Yeah. Right? I wanted to know the strategy. And even though I was a history major and I, I love reading about history, I struggled to really digest all of the Chinese philosophy and all of the Napoleonic uh, era military strategy and all of the depth of the Austrian economic tradition. But thankfully, Robert, because I had to uh, be prepared, I didn't want to be underprepared for somebody that my wife calls the Bitcoin professor. I actually really sat down and for the first time in a long time, I really just, I spent the whole day yesterday just thinking about and notating this book. And a lot of the value is actually not in the naive kind of Austrian strategy that, that Spitznagel advocates for in the final two chapters. It's in all of the roundabout way in which he builds up these concepts and ideas and the way time pervades the entire book, the way time preference, the way uh, thinking about human action and human incentives, understanding the linkages between all of those to get to the final strategy. It allows you to, from first principles, actually look at your own investment strategy and dissect it a little bit more. So I found myself going back through some of my recent, um, you know, purchases like Vertex, this pharmaceutical company that has a very high ROIC and was temporarily trading at a, a relatively low multiple over the last six months that I had been accumulating and kind of re-underwriting it with this Austrian ideal <laughs> in mind. Um, and that's where the real value is. I was uh, I was able to think through it all the way from the beginning again and and, and actually ask myself whether that that made sense or not. It turns out it does. Mm-hmm. It checks a lot of the uh, the boxes. But but thank you because. Uh, if if I hadn't been talking with you about it, I, I I would have been left with sort of more of a high level overview, and and now I actually felt like I, I relearned some things by reading this book. So I highly recommend that that people check it out. The Dow of Capital by Mark. No, let me ask you: the first time you read it, was this pre Bitcoin for you? The first time you read it? No, it was post Bitcoin. It was uh, a couple years ago. Yeah. Have you experienced Bitcoin, or I don't know? It's not necessarily Bitcoin. It's not like you just learn about Bitcoin and your time preference lowers, but it's something about interacting with it or thinking through it or studying these concepts around money and Austrian economics. Have you found and experienced that contributing to a lower time preference in yourself? 100%, but I, but I would say that I already had a low time preference before. Mm. That was a learned behavior from my mother who was an obsessive piggy bank style saver. Mm. Right. Uh, unlike my, it's funny because the dynamic of my childhood is my dad was an aggressive, uh, by the seat of your pants entrepreneur, like constantly swinging for the fences. And my mom was this very conservative, rigorous, uh, d- disciplined saver and investor. Um, and so I kind of bifurcate, like I, I'm a entrepreneur on, I play offense like mm. an entrepreneur and I go out and build companies and like to take risks. But on the other side, I, I'm kind of like my mom. Like I've always mm. been, with a very uh, kind of low time preference, long duration uh, type of thinker around investing. And so Bitcoin made more sense once I understood what it was, mm-hmm. right? But it wasn't like I needed to change a lot. I just actually needed to spend the time to understand it. 
before I understood it, I looked at it like the dot-com bubble because my historical analogy, the thing that it reminded me most of when I first saw it was dot-com stocks because that's mm-hmm. what I was trading in my Stanford mm-hmm. dorm room in the late 90s. But once I understood what it actually was, I realized, oh, this is something that I absolutely have to own because it's consistent with my existing values. I believe in things like living below your means, Yeah. right? I, I believe in things like making long-term uh, you know, or longer duration style investments. That's really what seed stage investing is. I mean, you oftentimes don't get a payoff for 10 or 15 years. Like what's more long duration in the economy than that? Like putting money to work today that you may not see again, that if, even if you're successful, it may take 15 years to to have it come back. Right. Uh, That said, like being on Bitcoin, Twitter, interacting with Bitcoiners, listening to your podcast and, and others have definitely helped like reshape and help me understand with more depth, like where those uh, you know, principles come from, like why they matter. Right. And, and what the end result is of having that lower time preference over time. So I would say owning Bitcoin's accelerated a lot of inclinations I already had uh, before Bitcoin. That's really cool. Yeah. So you, there's another way to think about Bitcoin maybe is the ultimate piggy bank. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's on a point to point basis is the best savings device in the world. Yeah. Uh, probably, probably ever. Very cool. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, could you tell my audience where they could find you? Just at Mike Alfred at Twitter. Simple enough. All right, dude. Thanks again.